Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us on the UK Run Chat podcast today. Um, could you just give our listeners a brief introduction to you if they've not heard of you before? Yeah, sure. And thank you so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. It's great to be here and great to chat about running with yourself. Um, so I, I think from my perspective, like, yeah, I'm, I'm an ultra runner uh, in my spare time outside of work. Um, work-wise, I specialise in, in hip and knee replacement for Johnson & Johnson, which is rather ironic because my, my hobby is, uh, as I say, ultra running. Um, and yeah, very lucky I get to, to go and do that in my spare time and have some adventure um, by doing some challenging races like Badwater and like uh, the, the Triple Crown of 200 milers and also try to raise money for Operation Smile, which is a charity I've been supporting for eight years as well. Yeah, so, so tell us about um, your Triple Crown then, because that's what we really want to talk to you about today. <laughs> uh, so congratulations, first of all, on fifth place. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the series is and what, what it means, just to give our listeners a bit of perspective into what an achievement is? Yeah, sure. And again, thanks for the kind words. It really means a lot to me. And um, yeah, it's just been an epic summer of adventure, really. So the Triple Crown of 200 Milers is um, free. It's a series of free 200 mile races um, in the United States. So the first one is the Tahoe 200 race, which takes place around Lake Tahoe in California in the mountains out there. Uh, this year, it was meant to take place in June, but because, and this still blows my mind, they had 58 foot of snow last winter. Um, if we had 50, 58 centimetres, we would be, uh, you know, falling into to ruin here, but 58 foot. So the, the first race was postponed. The second race, um, the, the first race, I should say, was postponed to the middle of July. The second race, the Bigfoot 200, which takes place in the Pacific Northwest, uh, turned out being two weeks after the first 200 miler, which, as you can imagine, was uh, quite a logistical and um, recovery-based challenge to get ready for a second one like that in such a short space of time. Uh, and the thing that I should add about the Bigfoot 200 is it, it's 47,000 foot of elevation up and down. So it's a real quad killer. And then the Moab 240, which uh, some of your, your listeners may be uh, familiar with, is a 240-mile foot race around the deserts and mountains of, of Moab in Utah. And it's such a beautiful place to run. I think um, the, the, the really challenging thing uh, at Moab at this point, uh, other, outside of the mileage, which is a big enough challenge in itself, yeah. is the, um, the climate at this time of year in October. Um, very challenging to deal with. You can be dealing with like 30 degrees in the day and then minus temperatures at night, um, which means like logistically you're trying not to make mistakes with your kit and all that kind of stuff and thinking sections ahead. So um, it's a unique challenge. And yeah, I was aiming to to try and become the, the first Britain to do it. So um, yeah, it's been a big summer of adventure. Yeah, it sounds it. So, I mean, it's a really daunting challenge for anybody who isn't an ultra runner, but even those in the ultra running community must be thinking, you know, wow, what inspired you to get involved? Had you done any of the individual races before? You know, what inspired um, you to, to go for the Triple Crown? You're far too kind. And, and thank you again for <laughs> such kind words. I think um, for me, I'd run Moab in, in 2019. 
I absolutely love it. Uh, I was hooked on that race and just thought I would love to go back one day. And I'd saw um, back then in 2019 that people were doing this thing called the Triple Crown. I was like, Ooh, what's that? You know, would I ever be able to do it? Um, that kind of motivated me to to want to sign up for the physical side of the challenge. And then, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, my my personal passion outside of the running and day-to-day life is to try and do a bit of good as well. So I generally believe that, you know, when we get older in life, you know, the things that we'll remember won't be the times where, you know, don't get me wrong, I love watching Netflix of a cold winter's night, but it'll actually be the times where you went out and had an adventure and create these kind of seminal moments that you, you hopefully remember uh, and take into to old age with you. And I try to couple that with, with trying to raise money for Operation Smile too, because I think, well, you know, if I can have a bit of an adventure in my life and hopefully try to make other people's lives a little bit or journey through life a little bit better or easier then hopefully that would be a good spot to get to so that's what keeps me inspired I suppose yeah absolutely so tell just tell us a little bit about the charity you're raising money for and then um, I'll ask you a little bit about the races then Uh, Yeah, sure. So Operation Smile is a worldwide charity that uh, performs surgical intervention for children with cleft lip and cleft palate all around the world. And, you know, for $180, 150 quid, it literally is like life changing surgery. And, you know, I think a smile is the universal language of the world. When you you and I have never really met before, we get on this call and you smile at each other, you keep you kind of create that warmth. And I think that's very sad yeah. if you don't have that opportunity in life. So that's what I try to do is try and raise money for them. Yeah, oh, lovely. Thank you for that. Um, so, so walk us through then that these races, they sound very, very different um, in terms of terrain and climate as well um so just walk do you want to walk us through kind of each race briefly <laughs> not all yeah, yeah. Miles of each. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're going to be here for about 249 yeah. hours i think um yes the the first race the tahoe uh 200 um as i say it's postponed this year it took place in july uh that created a kind of new problem in that a lot of the snow melt had then gone uh, so accessing water on the course at the high, you know, high mountains. And you're talking about mountains that are like anywhere between 10 to 14,000 feet high, which is, is pretty high up, especially for, for me coming from the UK, living in London. Um, I was raised in Wales, so obviously used to running in the mountains. But yeah, yeah it, it's a difficult course. Um, incredible views as you, you're kind of running up above Lake Tahoe itself. So you can see down onto the lake, which is very cool. Um, but a lot of elevation, 37,000 feet of elevation incline. Um, a lot of really nice single track runnable stuff, but also some technical terrain too. Um, there's one section, uh, they call it the power line climb. And I think it goes up like a couple of thousand feet in just over a mile. Um, it's literally, it follows a power line cut on the, on the tree line. Um, and it's very, very technical. Going up it wasn't so bad because you can just, you know, you, you just get into that grind. I'm sure you do. I'm sure your listeners do. Where you just got your poles down. You're, you're stomping up this mountain. And then um, on the way down, I found myself coming down it at like 2 a.m. Uh, and trying to come down something that technical and that steep at 2 a.m. resulted in me falling into a number of bushes and on my butt a few times. Uh, other highlights from Tahoe was... Um, running uh, an out and back section, so short four miles out, short four miles back. And um, 
coming up the trail and uh we uh my pacer tells me to stop i, I immediately stop i said why why are we stopping he said dude there's there's two bear cubs just up the trail there uh to which that was um the first time during an ultra i've ever <laughs> experienced that and then the mother bear kind of came out of the bushes and just sized us up and the the cubs ran back to the mum and it took off but the mother bear was um it looked like the size of a nissan micra just absolutely enormous oh wow so that was a unique challenge um What's going through your head then when you hear about bears on the trail what are you thinking well, I mean, we could literally see them. We could see the cubs up ahead of us, and I've got a photo of the the mother bear, which I made my pacer take, so I was too too chicken to do it myself. Um, but I mean, it's one of those moments that probably lasted like ten, twenty seconds, but actually felt like ten hours, and um, a little bit of fear, of course. But I was so tired that after about you know, once the bear had taken off and the adrenaline calmed down, after about ten minutes, I was like wow that was that was quite something you know to see two bear cubs in the wild and it's mum like yes it was terrifying and I'm thinking yeah. I've still got to run back this way um but at the same time I was like wow that that's going to be you know something to maybe tell the grandchildren one day that would be pretty cool um so that was uh Tahoe uh the race itself went really well uh up until around mile 206 where um whatever reason maybe some gpx file issues not related to my navigation but the course ended up being about 11 miles longer than expected and and that happens when you're running this distance it, yeah, it's wow. just the nature of it so it ended up um i went from uh yeah 206 to 217 and probably slowed down a little bit towards the end but i was delighted i, I came home in 19th place which um you know, for the first race in a series of three, I was, I was fairly pleased with that, to be fair. Yeah, that's amazing. So that, yeah. How how was the uh, weather conditions then? Because you mentioned that the race had been postponed. What what was it like temperature-wise? Yeah, it, it was hot. There's a couple of photos of me taking a trail nap on a snowbank, trying to cool myself down. And you're trying to filter water into bottles, you know, and there's no water. So you're putting snow into the bottle to try and filter that. But there wasn't too much of that around either. So, you know, you're talking 20 mile sections. As a runner, you know, you can't carry like six litres, seven litres of water. So after three or four hours when it's, you know, close to 35, 36 degrees, you're out of water and you're just trying to find a way to survive through that section, replenish and, and kind of go again. So, yeah, it was um, it was pretty brutal. Uh, but it did get hotter at the next race as well. So, um Bigfoot uh, is, um, for any of your listeners thinking about doing any of these 200 milers, you know, Bigfoot is, uh, in my opinion, one of the most difficult races that I've ever encountered. It's um, It takes place in a very remote area of the Pacific Northwest, uh, near a town called Randall uh, and Mount St. Helens. So basically, it's... Have you ever watched those shows on TV where they, they're like, I swear I saw a Bigfoot last week? Yes. You know, those, <laughs> you know, the ones, you know, yeah. the, the certain types of characters on them. It's it, when you go there and you run in that kind of place and it's the second or third night of running through those kind of mountains. I can kind of understand where they might be coming from on the Bigfoot front. Um, it's just so heavily forested and heavily overgrown. Um it makes it a very technical race. 
Um, it's a very tiring race, of course, with 47,000 feet of incline up and yeah. decline down. Just really saps the life out of you. And um, I think the uni- unique thing about Bigfoot is that every section is a challenge. And Michelle, I'm sure you've been to, to races, longer races, where you do a section and you think, mm, you know, I kind of coasted through that section. And then you think, oh, there's that bigger section coming up. At Bigfoot, every section is like that. And you're like, okay, this section is going to be a challenge because of the heat. This section is going to be a challenge because it's overgrown. This section features 7,000 foot of elevation in 18 miles, like on a on basically an unmaintained trail. And you're bushwhacking, you're getting hit in the face by trees, you're climbing over you know, fallen trees that are, are literally, you know, the, some of them are like the size of, you know, width of cars and minibuses and things like that. It's just insane terrain. Um, how they found that route is incredible. I mean, Destination Trail do such a great job of organising these events in such a remote place. Um, but Bigfoot is definitely very challenging. And then you make it through all the mountains, all these high passes and forests and river crossings. It's a spectacular race. And then you get to a road section and it's 13 miles, half marathon back to town. You think after all that, it can't be that bad. It's only 13 it's miles back to town. Easy, don't you? Yeah. I was just thinking. Yeah. That. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, so uh, fortunately or very unfortunately for me, um, they'd managed to pick a date that the temperature rose unusually uh, and it was 42 degrees Celsius on the road, 13 miles. So that, um, that's a difficult enough task on its own, but I think, you know, when you've run whatever it is, 196 miles and you've got 13 left to go and you're thinking, oh, 42 degrees, it's, it's slightly more challenging. Um, so that was Bigfoot. I came home in 35th place, so I was pretty pleased with that as well. Um, the thing, you know, again, for your listeners is that when I ran Tahoe, you're competing against certain red runners that are doing the Triple Crown and others that are just doing singularly that race. Same thing at Bigfoot. So, you know, it was a very competitive field there and um, people were moving very fast through those mountains. And then you had all the triple crowners, the people that were doing the series of three, who were essentially running another 200-mile race two weeks after the last one. So um, it was it was really, really hard. One of the hardest experiences I think I've had in running, actually. And then... Came back to the UK, reset, ate some food, rested up a little bit, did the recovery thing right, and then flew back to Utah to run the Moab 240 on the 13th of October. Um, and Moab, again, just a spectacular place to run. I think it's 34,000 feet of elevation up and, and down at, at Moab. They tend to, to match them. And um you're just running through. Do you remember watching like Westerns as a oh, kid? I used to love Westerns. Yeah. Clint Eastwood loved his films. Yeah. Oh, that's about as, as close as I can get to Clint Eastwood is kind of running through the same terrain as, uh, as Moab. It's, um, it's cowboy country and, um, you're out there and you're really exposed. You're running through, you know, daytime temperatures are like 30 degrees, evening temperatures, you know, it could be minus temperatures, minus two, minus three. There was snow in the mountains, so you, you traverse all these deserts and canyons, and then in between, climb these two massive mountain ranges. So the Abajo Mountains, Shea Mountain, and then the La Salle Mountains, um, 
I don't know, 30, 40 miles after the first set of mountains. And it's, uh, again, that section from Road 46 to uh, Giza Pass, extremely technical. Uh, lots and lots of rocks to kick your toes off, which is, you know, when I haven't got many toenails <laughs> left, it's less of a problem, I suppose. Uh, and then on that section, um, just before dawn, on the last day of the race, I... Um, Again, with my pacer, running up the trail, this time, you know, up at, uh, I'm guessing, around 10,000 feet. And um, my head torch picked up four eyes, two sets of, uh, of eyes in the bushes. And um, I turned again to look, and it was two mountain lions this time, not bears. Um, and the scale of uh, being terrified, I think that was probably a lot higher than the bears, because the bears just were more interested, but the mountain lions, I mean, they're, they're proper apex predators. Also, two nights before, I had seen, uh, again, obviously I'm on the trail. That's where I am. I'm coming up the trail again and um, just going into a night section. It's like, I don't know, five, six in the evening, starting to get dark, and there's an enormous dead cow on the side of the trail. And I'm thinking, hmm wonder what's killed this cow and then slowly I got alongside and you could see where the, the mountain lion had literally ripped its throat wide open. So um, it, it, when you're going into that kind of scenario and you're thinking I'm probably going to be six hours before I see the, the aid station and my crew, I didn't have a pacer with me. That yeah, it definitely gets the heart rate up a couple of extra beats for sure. Yeah, well that's um, the adventure you wanted, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, uh, that was Moab and it's a big 240 mile loop. And if anyone ever gets a chance to go and visit that place, I uh, strongly suggest to you, it's beautiful out there. Yeah, it's, it sounds amazing. They all do. Yeah. I mean, wow. What Thank adventures. You. I mean, how do you, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, I've got loads of questions for you. Um, <laughs> but how do you, first of all, how do you run 200 miles and then two weeks later, go and do that again? Like what, how do you possibly recover from that? What does your recovery in between look like? I know you'd normally have longer, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, what are that's you such a good question as well. Thank you so much for asking it. It is a really good question. And it's something that I, um, you know, I discussed at length with my coach, Jeff Brown. And Jeff's a, an ultra runner from, from the States. He's, he's actually the, the Moab course records holder. And, you know, so he's very experienced at, at big distances. And we were chatting about the recovery element between Tahoe and Bigfoot. So first thing I did, as soon as I finished the race, uh, not the healthiest start to the recovery, but I had one beer and a burger and chips. So that, that sorted me out for, for you know, a little bit. And then it was you know down to the serious stuff, really, because I knew I was going to be on the road. So um the next morning we got up and I went and sat in Lake Tahoe, just soaked my legs in the cold water, which you know helped with some of the swelling, and then um went down to the local supermarket, stacked a trolley with loads of high protein food just to try and deal with the inflammation. Um and then you know we mapped out what we were gonna do each day and pretty much it involved like A, obviously, you know, making sure that the feet were recovering well around the, the blisters element. So Obviously, popped them all straight straight away after the race, made sure they were cleared up, made sure there was no infections. Um, and then it was a case of yeah, just trying to eat as much as I could. We went up to a place called Boise in Idaho. So um, 
America, like they're very good at having like these recovery centers, which um, uh, not re- recovering alcoholics or anything like that. <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad. I did have a couple of beers after the race, but that was fine. Um, it was, uh, it's one of these centers you go in, you can do cryotherapy, you can get an intravenous IV where you can literally pick what you want. So it, it can enable you to rehydrate quicker, all those kind of things. So um, basically went in, did some cryotherapy, which was um, yeah, quite literally cool, but very, very useful as well. Certainly in terms of the swelling, made me feel a lot better. Um, then I did a, an IV, which was like saline and uh, magnesium, things like that, which would aid with the recovery process. And then each day just eating, hydrating, I would do the, the the compression boots religiously every day, morning and night, and then using the um, the Ferragon massage gun as well, which was really, really helpful. And then, yeah, just kind of try to get my mental game in check, I think, and prepare for what was coming at Bigfoot. And I think, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners would relate to the fact that, you know, these longer distances like that um, – they're as much mental as they are physical for sure. Cause you know, everyone gets to a point where they're suffering. It's just like, you know, can you keep pushing forward when you're exhausted and you know physically spent, I suppose. Yeah. Cause how long, how long are you out there for kind of 200 plus miles? How long does that take you roughly? So it's, it's a long time, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, the, the quickest I've ever done 240 is 77 hours back in 2021. Um, but the races this year, I did Tahoe in 80 hours. I did Bigfoot in 80 hours. And I did um, Moab in 88 hours. Slightly screwed up my sleep towards the end of Moab. I think I got a bit of finish line fever on the the last uh, last afternoon. Probably could have done with a little nap, which would have made a difference to the overall time. But I think when you're coming off the the back of you know two or already big races you're kind of thinking well i've just gotta i've just gotta get to the finish as quickly as possible really yeah so how do you manage your sleep during a long race like that then what happens I guess, i'm guessing you try um, to sleep as little as possible i think you know sleep is a really like un unknown variable or unmapped variable that's kind of relatively new and pretty much specific to like you know, that distance between 100 to 200 miles, because most people can go a night without sleep. You know, yeah. we've all done maybe two nights without sleep, but actually doing that when you, you're physically moving through challenging land, land landscape and also you're trying to be competitive is, is very strategic, I think. Um, and it's also very unique to the individual. So I... Uh, you know, I'm not like Courtney DeWalter or, or Jeff where, you know, I can sleep for five minutes and then I'm good to go. Like I, I need to sleep more in 20 minute cycles. So I think at Moab, I ended up sleeping for about three hours, but I'm always kind of mindful of it's either a 20 or a 40 minute nap pretty much. Yeah. The only other thing I'll do is that if I'm really suffering on the trail in between sections is that I'll, I'll just bed down for five minutes on the side, but more often than not, that's the middle of the night and it's really cold and you end up moving pretty quickly. Um, actually, sometimes, you know, it's not just the sleep element. I think it is just almost the ability to just allow your body to reset, just yeah. not be moving, let the heart rate drop, 
maybe put your feet up against the log just to get some of that lactic acid circulating back down and then get up and move. Um, but also it's difficult to do, right, when you, you're trying to be as competitive as, as you can. Um, you know, you might be running really well and you're thinking, do I need to sleep or do I need to force myself to sleep? And then you're thinking, well, maybe somebody can come past me while I'm asleep or vice versa. So it does become quite strategic, actually. Yeah. As part so of do the you race. plan that in in advance? Do you like have a strategy that you follow for that? Or, or what are the yes. signs that you need to sleep? Um, yeah, so I do have a strategy which I, I follow and it it's still not correct and it still needs a mining out but every time I run this distance I learn something else another piece to the puzzle if you like and then I do plan it ahead of time yeah of course and sorry what was the second part of the question just how do you know like say if you're oh yeah the signs the signs yeah like mental we were talking about mental health earlier weren't we and kind of does your mental state drop a bit when and you know you're tired or is that usually a sign? You hit the nail on the head. Yeah. yeah. I think the best way to describe it, I was describing it to someone the other day. So the last section of um, of the race at Moab, I was really suffering from a lack of sleep. But I, I kind of got it into my head that I just wanted to finish and like I'll just keep pushing forward. And then it got dark and you're looking through the world. You're looking at the world through the a, a head torch, essentially, and everything's dark. And all you can see is this dust kicking up off the trail and it's really confusing. So I, I think that's the first sign is that I start to kind of get confused and, and question where we are, asking repetitive questions such as like, how far have we got left to go? And then my pacer answers that question or somebody answers it. And then I'll repeat the question in like a minute or two. Um, my wife always says that, you know, if I encounter her when I'm like that, that she can see it in my eyes um you know the pupils are really dilated it starts luring your words essentially it's very like a um a drunk on on a night out trying to bundle them into a cab but when that drunk is a runner on the side of a cliff in the mountains somewhere it's slightly trickier um but still achievable What a great analogy. I might use that one again. It's good. I've not heard that one before, uh, but it makes a lot of sense. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to call it run drunk. Run drunk is <laughs> what I'm going with. That one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that one. So you talked Thanks. a bit about confusion there, and I was reading your race report earlier, um, and you mentioned like hallucinations. Are they kind of to be expected during a race that long, or is, are they just down to tiredness? What do you think? Um, so I've never hallucinated in a hundred mile or anything up to like a 150 mile yeah. uh, race. It's only at the two hundreds where for me, I, I've been affected directly by hallucinations. I think it's when you look at them afterwards, they do become quite scary because you've, you've obviously lost touch with reality and it's quite unsettling. Um, certainly after the Moab race this year, I was a little bit kind of really confused and really kind of shooken up by the whole whole thing because you just lose touch so quickly. Because yeah, you're really um, living in that moment, I guess, aren't you? And you're believing what you're hallucinating, aren't you? So, yeah, how, how yeah, do you get out of that? Um, <laughs> so I was chatting to Jeff again about this last week. We had a, a recap and a rehash of the uh, the race, and 
one of the things that I did for the first time was that on the the last section, Porcupine Rim, 16 miles uh, down to the, the finish line, um, I kind of know that section pretty well. And I know it's very remote, very rugged, but it ends with a three-mile section onto the road. Um, I was questioning my pacer, Ben, come all the way over from Wales, and I was questioning, you know, why are we still out here? Where are we going? Why is it taking so long? Um, and he sat me down and he said, look, if you don't sort this out, we're, we're going to be out here for you know, a fair few hours yet. And there was one particular moment where I was staggering around. I sat myself down and I just had my head in my hands. And I, I remember saying to Ben, I said, I need you to describe everything that's happening like as you encounter it so that I've got something real to hang on to. It's the first time I've done it, and I would do it again in the future, but basically I asked him to describe what was coming up on the course. So I said, well, look, you know, I know there's a road in three or four miles, and when we got onto that road, I said, can you tell me, you know, what we're going to do to get there? He said, right, okay, we've got to go left in maybe half a mile. So then I would hang on to that, and I'd get to that turn, I'd be right what's next and he would just give me the enough carrot if you like to keep chasing him which was perfect um but it's been you know the the first time i ran moab i i completely lost it i didn't know anything about sleep deprivation i had no sleep strategy um i came into the 200 mile aid station uh 6 a.m in the morning i'd run all night and my uh my crew said how was your night i said well you know, it was pretty rough, actually. But I saw two cowboys out on the trail. They said, Scott, we're, we're up at 10,000 feet. There's there's no cowboys out on the trail. So, okay, well, uh, you know, we've got 40 miles left to go. I, I need to get done. So they said, right, let's get you some Pro Plus. We'll get you some Red Bull. Let's just crack on. Uh, very British approach to it. So off we went and um, we got down to the last aid station and they gave me some more Red Bull, some more Pro Plus and, I said, right, let, let's make the pack super light. And they said, yeah, let's make the pack light because you, you're going to be done before sundown. So they lightened my pack and off I went again. And um, I got around the, the corner probably a mile or two away from the aid station, 16 miles left of a 240-mile race. And I just started staggering around, falling into the bushes. I, I couldn't really grasp what was going on. Um, never experienced it before. Uh, eventually I, I started running again um, and I was convinced I was being chased by a witch. So I ran and I ran and I ran like a madman. I had no idea where I was going and eventually I fell over. And you know, I'm sure you remember when you're in school and you fell over on the playground and I cut my hands and I cut my knees and I was nearly in tears and I got back up and I, I tried running away again and I found this rock. So I, I hid under the rock and I could hear the, the witch calling my name, and I was absolutely bloody terrified. And eventually I could hear this voice getting closer and closer. And the witch stuck her head under the rock, and I, I kind of turned away and went, away, witch, away. To which uh, the witch responded, I'm not a witch, I'm your bloody wife, you idiot. <laughs> so I, may, I maintain... I, I maintain I'm factually correct, but I am um, joking. My wife, Abby, Abby, is absolutely brilliant, but I was convinced she was actually pacing me and trying to keep me on track. But the sleep deprivation convinced me that I was being chased by a witch. And um, yeah, 
she loves it when I tell that story. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. That sounds really scary from your point of view, though, because for you, that's real, isn't it? And it was yeah. real, hundred yeah. percent felt real, and it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Um, and also, I went from fifteenth to thirty fifth place in the last last sixteen miles of uh, a two hundred and forty mile race, but. Um, I did get some uh, uh, retribution from the witch two years later. I went back in, in, in the back end of 2021 and um, I was able to um, actually go out and uh, run the race again. And in 2019, when I'd been chased by the witch, a lovely man from Utah called Jason had uh, come and eventually led me down and got me to the finish. And he came to pace me on the last 40 miles and he posed for a photo under the rock and he actually ended up bringing me home in the 15th place that I should have finished two years prior. So that was, um, yeah, nice bit of karma there. To end yeah. Oh, well, that's a nice, that's a nice ending. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that your race report that you, you literally slept just eight hours across the three races. That's, it's not much at all, is yeah. it? No. So it took, 249 hours to finish the triple crown and yeah eight hours of that was was dedicated to sleep which was yeah pretty rough the, the going off to sleep i'm fine with it's the um when you wake up in a, a dark cold aid station maybe you're at mile 80 and you're thinking Oof, still got 160 miles to run that's uh it's a pretty sobering thought and um yeah, quite overwhelming, actually. And I think that's one thing I've learned over the course of running these races is um, having a, the ability to put the, um, the the races into sections and not get too overwhelmed by what's coming up. And I think that's something I definitely had to do for the, the triple was just take it one aid station, one section at a time for the, the whole three races, if that makes sense. So how, I mean, how spread out are the aid stations and the checkpoints throughout these events? They tend to vary um, based on the, the ability for the race organization destination trail to be able to actually safely put an aid station into these places. Because, yeah. I mean, it, it, they're super remote. To give you a kind of idea, at the Bigfoot race, the runners run 209 miles, but the, the drivers in the, in the crew will drive anywhere between 900 to 1,000 miles. Wow. So that, I mean... Yeah, it's just insane, like how remote these places are. You're driving kind of three hours on a dirt road up to an aid station and three hours back, and you know they have an adventure on their own just trying to get to these uh, these aid stations. But typically for a runner, they're usually between kind of twelve to twenty miles apart. Um, when you start getting into that twenty two, twenty four miles apart. You know, it can be very, very taxing and very, very challenging. And yeah. I think. Um, the one thing with those races is, you know, Moab again is a great example just because of the sheer distance. But you can, you know, be in the middle of the day, it's 30 degrees and you're carrying your puffer jacket. And then you've, you've got to be thinking at the next aid station, right, well, what do I need for the this evening? Do I still need that puffer jacket? Do I still need my head torch? Have we got spare batteries? All those kind of things. Um, and one misstep, on mistake, so to speak, can curtail the whole race. I mean, it can quite easily lead to a DNF. Uh, at Bigfoot this year, um, I was very lucky. I had my pacer on this section linear with me, and um, I my my batteries just stopped working. I still don't know why they stopped working. I had backup batteries. I got them out. 
Um, that didn't work properly after a couple of uh, couple of minutes of cut back out, and we ended up, you know, running a pretty difficult section up to to Elk Peak, which is you know pretty steep terrain, pretty heavy bushwhacking, mm-hmm. and you know, Linnea had to give me her head torch so that I could keep seeing where I was going, and she used her phone to guide her. And yeah, you've got to be so careful that you, it's. I guess it's. Um, it's easier to make mistakes the more tired you get. So you're very reliant on um, having good crew, good supportive people around you to, to keep you moving forward. From my perspective, I am at least. Yeah. So at what point are you allowed paces in the race? You mentioned the last 40 miles. It, yeah. So then? it changes um, at each race. So I believe at Tahoe, it was 60 miles in. At Bigfoot, it's 42 and then at Tahoe, I think it's 72, something like that. They changed. Um, Bigfoot, I think they do it particularly because um, it's quite, as I say, quite dangerous terrain. And after 42 miles, you've got um, an 18-mile climb, right. um, which is really, climb. really yeah, – It's it, honestly, it's um, – it's such an incredible place to run. It is, and I feel very lucky to have been able to get out there and run this summer for sure. It's been amazing. So, talk to me a little bit about nutrition because that is probably one of the questions we get asked most when people are looking to get into ultras. Certainly, it's like, what, what do you eat? How do you plan your nutrition and make sure you stay hydrated, particularly in hot climates like like you've been running? Oh, no. Yeah. How do you manage <laughs> yeah, well, that? I'm, I'm... As a pasty Welshman, I'm not really made for the hot climates that well. So definitely the acclimatization part is key. And um, yeah, just starting on that on that topic of, of heat, um, I naturally find it very challenging to, to run in, in hotter temperatures as most people from the UK would. And I think that, you know, the hotter you get, the the more the fluid that is in your body goes to protecting your major organs so sitting around them and trying to keep them cool that therein creates its own challenge because you need so many calories to keep moving at these kind of events but there's no fluid left in your stomach to help process the nutrition that you need um which ultimately leads to you know a lot of episodes of certainly for me learning by being sick um so i i find that kind of cooler easier to eat like gels stuff like that are really useful um at these types of races um one thing we stumbled on is again my wife abby's idea was um the idea of like obviously we're not going to do it if you're running the spine race or you know in the uk but um at cocodona last year which is a 250 mile race in arizona super hot um she had a brainwave of going off to uh, um a CVS or somewhere, a Walmart comes back with this gallon of ice cream. And at first I was like, Oh, ice cream. I can't eat ice cream in the middle of the race. I said, maybe I'll give it a try. And I literally ate three quarters of a gallon of ice cream. And when you think about it, it's actually really good because it cools you down. And then obviously it's giving you a crap ton of, of calories as well at the same time, bit of sugar as well, pack things up. So I don't recommend that one all the time, but during the race i've i've definitely kind of i'm still working on it but i've honed it down to knowing exactly what i need for each section and trying to keep i think in the past i've probably i've keep giving myself too many options um and actually 
I know now what works for me, um, you know, whether that's gels or plantains, uh, whatever it is, and putting those into a little pack and putting them in my bag, I think is a smart thing to do. Hydration wise, um, I think I'd probably ran the Triple Crown sponsored by Sprite this summer. Um, <laughs> if, if they're listening, I would love to get sponsored by Sprite. But basically, I I use Tailwind, I use Scratch, um, like the, the the classic hydration um, drinks with uh, electrolytes and, and calories in. Um, I do find that you get this kind of, um, you know, you get a bit sick of tasting the same thing. So having a couple of options on drinks is quite a nice one for me. And then at the aid stations, I like to, I, yeah, generally do like having a can of Sprite. I find it yeah. really refreshing. Can it's you got drink good, that fizzy or does it have to be flat? Yeah. Are you okay with the fizzy stuff? Because I've always, I've I'm never a, really got on with fizzy drinks at aid stations. Are you, a, do, do you go for the flat Coke? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just can't deal with the fizziness. But that's probably <laughs> so, the individual um, thing. <laughs> yeah i think it is i think you i think that's the great thing about these races everyone yeah. learns something about themselves and what they can do at each race and um yeah i've learned that i actually really like fizzy sprite at these races i can drink them it's not a problem i have been known to have the odd beer here and there at one or two aid stations um a bigfoot this year i came into an aid station absolutely roasting hot and a guy that I, I know from another race he came over and he said, dude, I got you a beer. And he just gave me this beer. I drank it and it tastes like absolute nectar from the gods. You know, you're drinking it and you're thinking, wow, that life's not so bad. I'm in the beautiful mountains. I've got some friends and family with me and um, we're having an adventure. I've got beer in my hands. You can't go wrong. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Just the one, though, just for clarity, just the one. <laughs> oh, no, it's been great chatting to you, Scott. I've really enjoyed hearing about the races. So what have you got coming up next? You know, what's how do you top being the first Briton <laughs> to finish the Triple Crown? What oh, honestly, you it's, it's, come after it's, that? it's been great chatting to you as well. And, yeah, thank you for taking the time to talk to me and, and ask these questions about it. It really you know, means a lot because yeah, I'm not the kind of person that kind of walks around shouting my mouth about doing these things so it's nice when you chat to a fellow runner about it um i think what's next for me what's next for me um <laughs> two days before my lab, i put my name into the hard rock uh 100 lottery over in colorado um i would love to go and run uh, a newer race called the divide 200 up in uh, canada at, at some point maybe next year um, my younger brother Reese has his own running company in Wales called Pegasus Ultra Running, and they've got a, a 200 mile uh, race down there called the Wild Horse. So I'm sure I'd love to to go and run my brother's race as well. Um, this is so many I'd like to do. I'd love to go back to Badwater and run Badwater and try and do a, a faster time over there in Death Valley in the heat. Um, Oh, there's just so much adventure and not enough annual leave. That's the problem. <laughs> how, how do you fit it all in? Because you work full time, don't you? How how does that work when you've got a full time job and you're trying to train for 200 mile races? It's 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 challenging, and um, again, it's, you've asked some great questions, and that's another one because um, there's a, it's challenging on a couple of fronts, really. So, number one, obviously, you've got to try and balance a, a busy corporate world of working in london and fitting in good quality training and i think 
you know, my coach Jeff has, has taught me so much over the last couple of years around smart training, around not beating myself up if I miss a session because work's overrun or whatever it is. Um, so I spend a lot of time like training in the gym and, and using the treadmill and then try, which it's not ideal, but it's where I am in my life and I've got to deal with it. Would I love to live in the mountains? Absolutely. I think if I lived at altitude in Colorado, it would be brilliant because, you know, running against these guys and they all live at those kind of altitudes. But I don't, I live in London, um, so I have to get creative. I go and run, you know, repeat hills, uh, hill repeats on on the hill in Richmond Park. I drag my sled up and down it. I do box steps, I do lunges, all these things to kind of get creative. And um, that helps during the week. And then on the weekend, I tend to go and get my longer runs done. So those will be wherever I can get to that's got some decent incline, whether that's the South Downs, North Downs, up in the Chilterns, I go up on the Ridgeway, wherever really, just try to mix it up. Obviously, when I go back to home, love to try and get a run in Wales and obviously the hills. Went to the Lake District this year for the first time. Shamefully, I've never been to the lakes and it's like, wow, this is beautiful. Um, so I need to spend some more time up there if I can this year. But yeah, it's trying to get a balance. And then it's not just with the the, the elevation piece, but also with the heat and, and trying to acclimatize to run those hotter temperatures. Like, you know, if you go to run against somebody from Colorado, they train pretty much in the heat in the summer and they train at altitude. So that creates a challenge. So what we've done here is we, we set the treadmill up in the old garage, which taken the time over a few years to convert and, now I've got um, some Bikram yoga heaters on the ceiling. It was, again, Abby's ingenious idea. So the, the room can heat up to, I think it's like 60 to 70 degrees Celsius. So oh, wow. I can crank the heat up during yeah. the winter to try and uh, make up for the lack of sunshine that we get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a really helpful thing for you, I guess. Yeah. What does What generally does your long run look like at a weekend? And are you a fan of the back-to-back runs because there's been some discussion over how useful they are um recently what are your thoughts i am a fan actually um they hurt obviously but i think if there's a different type of run on a back-to-back then actually i can see the benefit of it and i think specifically for a 200 mile distance if you're going like if i go and run a 50 mile distance what impacts that going to have on my training over the course of the next two weeks where i'm going to be out of it pretty much but if i go and ran let's say for argument's sake on a bigger block i go and run a 20 mile on a saturday and then 17 on the sunday or vice versa or something similar to that chances are because i've had the the gap in between overnight i've slept well i've eaten well going to recover a lot quicker and still be able to knock out a good quality training session during the course of the week but still end up with pretty much the same distance as if I'd gone and run a 50 or 40 mile or whatever. So personally, it's the only way I can do it. It worked for me. Um, would I love to go and run like 50 miles every day? I'm not so sure. So I think everyone's individual, right? Yeah. I know you, you do running coaching as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. Uh, and I, I'm sure like, you know, you and every coach out there treats the the client, the athlete as um, an individual. And I think that's the key to good coaching really is understanding that individual, understanding not just like what they're capable of, but 
you know, how you can structure a training program that they're going to stick to and it's going to be realistic for yeah, their life in general. Is that fair life, to say? Yeah. What, are your what, what are your thoughts on it? No, I, I completely agree with you. It's a very individual thing. I just know that some, I know Courtney, for example, she's been saying she doesn't like doing the, the long, long runs anymore or the back-to-back -back ones. She'd rather split them up. Um, but I'm always interested to hear other people's perspectives on it. But like you say, it is a very, it's a very individual thing, isn't it? And how your body responds to training. Maybe I should listen to Courtney more because she gets <laughs> outstanding results. She she's does. just insane. Yeah, she's she's so, it's so amazing what she's accomplished this year and in years prior as well. But it's, um, I love her humility and I love her athletic capability. Just um, incredible person. Seems like a really super cool human that you'd love to yeah. hang out with and have a beer with. And that's the other thing she would ha hang out and have a beer with you, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So just to finish off then, um, with what advice would you give to somebody who's looking to get into ultra, ultra long distance? You know, what are your, say, three top tips for people? I think my first bit of advice would be to, to just go and do it. Like, um, life's too short not to take on that adventure like we were talking about earlier, really. You know, you want to create those seminal moments and have an adventure in life and maybe couple it with some good as well. So my advice is to, you know, don't say, oh, I'd love to do that one day. I hate that phrase. Like, yeah, just go and do it. Exist, just sign yeah, up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one day never exists. So that would be my top line advice. But, like, specifically – um, for actually running the races themselves, um, I think number one, remember that um, the your body will keep going. Your mind will want to quit way before your body ever will. So, you know, think about resilience and fortitude and mental ability as much as you think about you know training your body. Uh, number two, uh, especially if you're doing 200 milers and those long long distances. Think about your sleep strategy in detail. And number three has to be nutrition and hydration. And I think if you can get all of those three, you know, amateur bits of advice that I'm offering relatively right, then you'll definitely get to that finish line. And, you know, like I say, if you can do that, you will have had an adventure. Um, and if you're doing it for a, a, a good charity or something that keeps you motivated, when it gets dark out on those trails, that'll keep you going. And um, I just encourage all your listeners to to go and give it a go, I guess. Yeah, our superb words of wisdom there, Scott. Thank you. Where can our listeners find you on social media if they want to follow your adventures? Oh, thanks. So um, my website's scottjjenkins.co.uk and my Instagram handle is rather originally at scottjjenkins as well and same on Facebook. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to try and launch uh, a YouTube channel very shortly as well. It's the same handle on there as well, but I need to get around to doing that. I just uh, I don't have the editing skills nor the time at the moment, but it's coming soon, hopefully. Yeah, oh, fantastic. Well, we'll look out for that. Well, thanks again for joining us, Scott. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope you've all enjoyed this episode.